thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So tonight we're going to continue our study of the book of Genesis. Um, I have a few more uh, general comments that I think are worth noting before we dive into verses 1 through 5, which is the first day of creation. And uh, particularly I'd like to point out something about the name of the book, uh, Genesis. Um, The Hebrew name was uh, sometimes expanded as uh, Sefer Bereshit. Sefer is a Hebrew word for book or for manuscript. And Bereshit is a very interesting word um, that is uh, usually translated in English as in the beginning. Uh, The word beginning typically translates the word Bereshit, but Bereshit has many meanings and we're going to come back to it. The other important thing is that it's um, this, this practice of naming a book based on the very first opening was very widespread in the, in the in ancient times. And today you can still see it maintained when a pope issues an encyclical. An encyclical of a pope is typically named after the very few words, the beginning of the encyclical. And that traces itself back to this tradition where uh, the ancient books were named after the very f- first uh, word. So in the beginning, that word, beginning, the Hebrew word for this Bereshit, and therefore this is what the book was named in the Hebrew. But it wasn't only named that. It was also known as Sefer uh, Hayashar, uh, which means the book of the righteous in honor of the patriarchs. So it had various names throughout the history, and the reason why I'm mentioning this to you is because typically we tend to sort of almost ossify everything. We tend to put something into very rigid, um, rigid and almost inflexible structure as if the name of the book uh, came down from heaven. Well, in one sense it did because it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, but it didn't, there wasn't a neon sign that sort of came down from heaven and hovered around over somebody's head to copy the name. It's a lot of human work that went into it, all inspired by the Holy Spirit. So the, the, the other important reason why I'm telling you this is because we, we again, we have a very, very um, we, we have a tendency to sort of raise on a pedestal certain things that are done by human hand for practical purposes. We need to be aware of them. So for instance, the book of Genesis is divided into 50 chapters. But that division is not is not intrinsic to the book. When the book was written initially, there were no 50 chapters. It wasn't divided this way. 
that particular division, at least if you look at it even from the Jewish side, which is sort of interesting, was introduced in uh, replacing an earlier Jewish system. Let's see, did I capture one? No, I didn't capture. But it was uh, introduced basically uh, being borrowed from the Catholic Bible in around 1330 by Rabbi Solomon ben Ishmael during a time of religious polemics. During that time, there was quite a bit of discussion going back and forth between Catholic theologians and Jewish theologians over the beginning, the meaning of Genesis. And in order to be able to speak uh, appropriately about the book, there needed to be some way to be able to refer to the same verses in the same chapters. So eventually the Jews adopted the Catholic division. And the, the, on the one hand, the unfortunate thing is that that division replaced one which was earlier and in a sense more uh, illuminating for us because the book used to be divided into, um, let me see now, 43 or 45 Sedari was the word, and the current word we use is lectionaries. Essentially, the book of Genesis was divided into the weekly readings of the Torah. And the liturgical year of the Jews spanned three years. And for those of you of the Latin rite, you understand why we have years A, years B, year C in the lectionary. Why you have three years? Because it really follows the Jewish tradition of reading scripture in a period of three years. The other, inter other interesting thing is that after the exile, when the Jews were, went to Babylon, the liturgical year got condensed into one year only, not three. And hence, the Eastern tradition of having a liturgical year of one year also stem from that origin. So that would have been more illuminating, illuminating uh, for us because it would have followed the liturgy. You see, Scripture was intended for the liturgy, not the other way around. It was written with liturgical setting. Why? Because you wouldn't just read Scripture and sit in your sofa. You'd read Scripture within the context of prayer. All right? And because of the division that we have now, the linear division, book one, chapter one, etc., we lose that liturgical context. But it's important for us to be aware of it. Another important element of the book, which is kind of really interesting, is that if you really think about it, the 80% um, of the book is devoted to 17% of the time span that is covered. So if you consider the beginning of time all the way through to the end of the story of Jacob and Joseph, 80% of the book is really dealing with that last segment, Jacob and Joseph. And there's a fundamental reason for that which sort of highlights the intent of the book. Right? The intent of the book is to, to say two things. That salvation is God-centered, and that salvation is, is Israel-centered. Those are fundamental notions, fundamental ideas that needed to be communicated. Salvation is God-centered, and salvation is Israel-centered. Right? The themes that we find, again, in the Catholic Church... No salvation right, without the Lord Jesus Christ and no salvation outside of the Catholic Church. Those are not novel ideas. Those are not manufactured ideas. Those are the continuum of something that was known back to the Jews when they understood God's election, 
God's calling. And we're going to have to come back and cover that. So these elements, the liturgy, salvation, the way God acts towards His people, and the way His people respond back to God, are going to be the fundamental themes we're going to see throughout the book. Keep those in mind. Now, they're not presented to us in a sort of a vacuum. Last time, I think I mentioned to you the importance of the covenant, and it is so important, I'm going to mention it again and again and again until it becomes second nature to you. Until you begun to you start to see how the covenant is ruling your own lives in its smallest details. Because it does. Incidentally, for those of you who were with us in the book of Revelation, and if you remember the whole series on the seals, if you do remember that series on the seals, and if you're observing the signs of the time today, you would understand what is going on in a covenantal sense. No longer would you see the events that are taking place today, whether politically or from a natural disaster point of view or economically, as just a set of random haphazard events, but you'd understand them as inscribed within the context of the covenant. And I don't think we would be off the mark if we were to say that the seals are being broken right now because they tally very, very well to what the book of Revelation is telling us. And if you recall, the fundamental message is that God is ruling the world through the liturgy. And God speaks to the world in the language described to us in the book of Revelation. It isn't about the end of the times. It's about how God rules the world through the liturgy. And if you keep those two things in mind, the covenant on the one hand, the liturgy on the other, and the understanding that God is love, then you are anchored in peace. Because no events out there are random. No events out there are meaningless. No events out there are absurd. They are the ongoing dialogue that God is having with us and the world. It is the covenant that gives us peace. So what is the covenant? One more time. And I apologize for those of you old-timers who have been around here for quite some time. You probably have memorized this by now. But for, for if you haven't... Um, you know, just uh, uh, follow along. Uh, and again, I will remind those of you that it'll be very, you'll do yourself a lot of good when you come to this Bible study to bring a notebook. Because hearing is one thing, writing is hearing twice. And I'll help you remember. There is a lot of data coming out. And it's very hard for somebody to sit and look at me and somehow remember a tenth of what I'm going to say. So, take notes. It will, uh, it will, it will, uh, it will do you some good. The covenant is an exchange of people. It's an exchange of people for the purpose of uniting families together. Uh, a, the p perfect example of a covenant, of course, is marriage. And we talked about that last time when I asked you, why do we have a couple coming over to the church to get married here? And the reason is, isn't just because it's romantic. It isn't because of the flowers and the music and the beautiful setting in the church. It is precisely because the man and the woman don't trust each other. They do not trust each other to be able to carry forward a promise of fidelity, of love and sickness and in health, in good times and in bad. And if you, and you don't have to believe me for those words. You just have to look at the statistics out there. 50% of marriages end up in divorce. Not because people are bad or terrible, but simply because human beings on their own simply cannot live up to that promise 
to be able to live together over a long span of years, not just live together as in two, um, two strangers putting up with, their, with each other, as it happens sometimes when a couple will live each other just for the sake of the kids, and as soon as the kids are grown up, after 25 or 30 years of marriage, they divorce because they just couldn't stand each other. That's not being married. That's being dead. I mean, kudos for them for doing it for the kids. Don't get me wrong. Credit to them. But something was fundamentally missing. And it isn't because they're bad. It isn't because they did something wrong. It isn't because they just couldn't do it. It's just that on their own, they just don't have what it takes. None of us, the best of us, don't have it. So any of you here entertaining an illusion that somehow when you fall in love, your love is going to be better than anybody, or, or different than anybody else, I'll say this right away to you. Yes, it's going to be different, as different than any other love out there. No more and no less. But on its own, it's not going to carry you forward. You need something more. You need the cross. So that's why you come to the church. You come to the church and you say to God, we are going to enter into covenant with you. We cannot guarantee that wedding, that marriage. We cannot confirm that the marriage is going to work for all these years. Work as in being alive, as in being deeper and deeper as we go along, as in being faithful throughout the difficult times that we are going to go through because difficult times are going to come. They're essential to make us saints. Without them, we won't be saints. We want that we won't be able to face ourselves in the mirror and see all the areas that we need to grow. You know, my only, my only wish is when I die, my wife will write on my tomb, I had nothing to complain about him. If she can write that, I made it. She knows me better than anybody else. She knows every single one of my weaknesses and every single one of my defects. If she could write that when I die, I did everything I could to be perfect as God is perfect, which is what we're called to be. Simple. So that's what marriage is. So we go to God and we say, you're going to underwrite our marriage. If you underwrite our marriage, if you sign our marriage with your name, it's going to happen. I don't know how it's going to happen, but it's going to happen. You're going to make it happen because you promised it and you paid with it with your blood on the cross. That's what your death on the cross means. It means I can look, you, I can look at you on the cross and I can say, you died on the cross. You're God. You knew what you were doing. And because of your death and resurrection, you're going to make that in my life. You're going to make it happen. I can't trust me, but I can trust you. That's the power of the covenant. And God says, now you invoke my name. And by name, I don't mean just the name of Jesus Christ. We're not, our faith is not Christocentric. Our faith is Trinitarian. It isn't Jesus and me only. It is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, me and the rest of the church. All right? God will make it happen because God promised. But now I have invoked God's most holy name in this covenant. And God says, since you invoked my name, According to the promise that I have made, should you be faithful to this covenant, I will bless you. And should you be faithless to this covenant, I will curse you. That is the covenant. That's how it works. And the curse of God, most, in most cases, is medicinal. It's bring us back. So bring us back to be faithful again. But eventually, it may not be. It may be condemnation to hell. Because remember one thing, none of us can go to hell on our own. It isn't a matter of just taking a ticket and just deciding to go to hell. God has to condemn us to hell. It's His act of condemnation that sends us to hell. He's the only one who can do that. Not the devil, not us, just God. 
Yeah, we merit hell by our own actions, granted. But still, he has to speak those words of condemnation. All right? That's how the covenant works. And it works at the family unit. It works at the country. It works in society. It works in companies. It works across the board. Because the whole world is under the dominion of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ claims the whole human race unto himself. So therefore, he is the King of kings and Lord of lords of all human beings, without exception. No one escapes his rule. No one escapes his, king, his kingship. He is the Lord. That's what we're proclaiming. And Jesus Christ is not sitting by the wayside observing what we're doing. He is right now ruling the world. So what's going on out there is the sign of his rule. And as Catholics, you cannot allow yourself to be anxious because he commanded you, do not be anxious. That is a command that he gave you. Anxiety is not from God. If you're anxious, pray. And a prayer of blessing and praise and thanksgiving for all the blessings that God gave you will take away anxiety. You can't be anxious. You're Catholics. Know who you are. Know what you've been called to do. What you have, the world doesn't have. You have the sacraments. You have the life of grace. You've been given much, and to whom much is given, much is required. And what is required? To convert the whole world? No. One thing is required. Become a saint. That is required. Nothing less will satisfy God. But each one of you becoming a saint, a canonizable saint, now, whether we canonize or not, that's a different story. It's up to God to decide. But that's what He wants. He wants us to be saints. And if you're not working on becoming a saint, if your objective in life is to not become a saint, you miss the boat. If your objective in life is to become a great doctor, a great teacher, a great this, a great that, a great whatever it may be, and not to become a saint, you miss the boat. Revise your intentions doesn't matter what you're doing, whether you're cleaning dishes, whether you're a mom at home, whether you're a president. None of that matters. What matters is the intention with which you're doing these things. And if, if your intention is to do it for the greater glory of God and for His love, and because you want to become a saint, not for yourself, but to please Him, to say, Lord, the blood that you have shed on the cross was not lost upon me. I will not permit that blood to be lost because I love you. And I will do everything I can to honor you by becoming what you want me to be, a saint. That's being a Catholic. It's manful. It's strong. It fears nothing. It fears no one. It only fears sin. That's who we're called to be. That's the power of the covenant doesn't matter how old you are. doesn't matter how strong you are. None of that matters. The only thing that matters is, what are your intentions? Are you intent on becoming a saint? And if not, what are you doing in the Catholic Church? Being a slug won't last for very long. Now, I don't know why I said all of that, but I said it. <laughs> My point, though, was that the covenant is very important. And I wanted to point out to you how you see that. The number of the covenant, by the way, is seven. Right? Why did God create the world in six days and rested on the seventh? Why seven? Which is a number that is virtually non-existent in any of the other ancient texts. You will not find seven anywhere else. 
having a seventh day of rest. Seven, to begin with. Not ten, ten fingers. Right? Not five. Not two, two hands. Seven. Huh? Having seven and repeating seven does not exist in any of the other ancient cultures surrounding the people of Israel. What did they come up with? They came up with because seven, because to make a covenant, to make a covenant, literally in Hebrew, is to seven oneself. Shavat is the root word for seven, for the Sabbath, and for the covenant. That's why the number seven is so important. No other reason for it. Just that it is the number of the covenant. That's why God rested, meaning celebrated, on the seventh day, which is therefore a day of celebration, of rejoicing. It is the day where, in Jewish marriage, which lasted seven days, the bride is revealed to the groom. It is the day of the consummation of the wedding. That's why the seventh day is so important. That's what it means. And to point that out, you'll see that the opening proclamation in the beginning God created the world, in Hebrew, contains seven words. The description of the primal chaos is set forth in twice seven words. The narratives, seven literally units, each begin with God said. There were seven God said in that initial text. And it therefore features seven times the formula for the effectuation of divine will and the statement of divine approval. God said and God saw that it was good. Seven times. Seven, 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 seven. We get a clue. It's the covenant. So the creation of the world isn't a scientific account the way we would conceive it. Its purpose is to say, God is creating a beautiful house. God came in. God made the house orderly. He put the luminaries for light. There was variety in creation. He made it a beautiful house. In preparation for what? In preparation for the consummation of the wedding, for the consummation of that union between that creature and himself, which happens on the seventh day. That's the purpose of that account of Genesis. Understood in its proper context, the text makes full, has, gains its full meaning. Taken out of its context, we can get it to say whatever we want. And obviously, how do we celebrate that? We celebrate, we celebrate that liturgically. Liturgically. All right. Now, the other important thing that I want to point out to you right away is that I remember last week I told you that the, 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 the Bible is not the perfect account of God's divine will. It isn't a book that came down from heaven, written word for word, representing God's perfect will in the triune life outside of human worries. That is not the Bible. The Bible is God's attempt at conversing with man within a specific historical context. Man weakened by sin, man who has trouble understanding the things of heaven. Therefore, God, in His wisdom and love, tailors the language, tailors what He wants to say, or has to say, in ways that man can understand them. And there's nothing, that should not surprise any of us. We do it all the time if we have kids, right? What is the family? The family is the school of God's divine love. Why does God give us kids? To show us how He loves us. 
Because as we love our kids, we learn to think about how God loves us. As we see our kids repeating the same mistake 400 times, we're reminded of how we repeat mistakes 400 times, and yet still God loves us because our love for our kids stems from His heart. So in that father-son relationship, in that father-daughter relationship, mother-son and mother-daughter relationship, we experience the love of the Trinity for us. The family is the school of God's love for humanity. So, if you're talking to your son who's three years old, you're trying to tell him, don't touch the candy. Right? If you sit him down and then start with an economical treatise on the impact of diabetes on society, I don't think you're going to get what you want. Nor will you get what you want if you started with the philosophical principles of Aristotle and the different categories of man being both made of matter and spirit and how candy impact your soul, I don't think you know what you want. Now, those are deeper and more important explanation than don't touch the candy because that's not good for you. But guess what? That kid can take only that. That's all he can take. So what do you do as parents? You just wait 20 years for him to understand what you're trying to say and then tell him, by which time his teeth are rotten and fallen down. Would you do that? So what do you do? You go down to his level now, don't you? You start gently. Daddy said, don't touch candy. But I want candy. No, you can't have it right now. Why? Not good for you. You got to eat your meat. I don't want meat. I'm not hungry. Well, you can't eat candy then if you're not hungry. The kid sulks. And two minutes later, what is he trying to do? Get the candy. Didn't you know he's going to try? Of course you knew he's going to try. What do you say when you see him trying? What are you doing? Are you asking a question because you don't know? Because you're shocked and surprised and dismayed? You know full well what he's doing, no, don't you? Why are you asking the question? Because you're helping that kid realize what he's doing and avoid the impending doom that will befall him if he continues trying to get to that candy. Because now he compounded his desire for the candy, the disordered appetite, with what? Willful disobedience. Now that's worse. So your punishment is going to go up. Why? Because you love punishing people? So I tell my kids, I've got seven of them. You really think I'm in a full-time job of punishing kids? Don't you think I have other things I want to do in my life? You think I enjoy doing this? They're really frazzled when I say this to them because they see that I have nothing to gain from punishing them. I'd much rather not punish them. It makes my life a lot easier. But that would be a crime if I didn't. So God, likewise, God doesn't delight in punishment, but He will punish if He must, because He loves us. Same principle. We're after the candies. Don't take that candy, not good for you. But I want the candy. It's not good for you. You should go pray. I don't want to pray. I don't like prayer. I don't have time to pray. Well, how come you have time for the candy? Let me show you, I'll give you an example. If I told you the next Sunday when you go to Mass there'll be right in front of the altar a pile of $10 million. It's first come, first serve. What time would you be at Mass? <laughs> I want the candy. I want the candy. See it? Okay. That's what, th- this is what the book of Genesis is all about. So don't be surprised or dismayed if you hear that, oh, there are some terms or some ideas or th- some thoughts in the book of Genesis that are found 
in the Enuma Elish, which is the Babylonian account of creativity, or in certain Egyptian writings that talk about the creation of the world. Of course, there are going to be um, some, some similarity. Why? Because it was the language of the people back then. They had common ideas. They just shared all that stuff and used those concepts to talk about their world. What language do you think God is going to use with them to be able to communicate appropriately profound truths that we need for our salvation? He's going to use that common language. When Our Lady appeared to St. Bernadette, which, la which language did she speak in? Pardon? No, she didn't speak in French. It wasn't really French. It was a dialect that the people around Lourdes would speak, which, if, if I'm not mistaken, is more related to Basque than it is to French. But it wasn't French. Not even Patois. It's really a dialect that is separate from French. We will not understand it. Those of us who speak French fluently would not make a word out of this thing. Right, so why did she do that? Why did she choose such a very common language? When she appeared in... Um, when she appeared to uh, Saint, um, Saint um, Juan Diego, what language did she use? Did she speak with lofty theological concepts? Why? Why didn't she? Is it because she can't? Is it because she's just a lo lowly woman who doesn't understand lofty theological concepts? You know she's the greatest theologian, right? By far. If you have any doubt, meditate on I am the Immaculate Conception. Why didn't she do that? Because her intent is not to show us how well of a theologian she is. Her intent is to speak to us in a language we would all understand. That is yet profound and simple. Do whatever he tells you. Simple, profound. That's the language of Scripture. Right? That's the language of Scripture. This is how Scripture functions. It is God speaking to us the language of love that we can understand. He's coming down to our level and trying to speak a language we can understand. It isn't the most perfect language. It isn't the language of the angels. It isn't the language we can deal with. That's how God is. He will not compromise on the truth. He will only give us the truth, but He will give it to us in the way that we can understand, and as much of it as we can understand. Alright. Let's move on. There are some really interesting, unique features of the book of Genesis. For instance, the divine names. There are more divine names in the book of Genesis than you would find any, 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 anywhere else in the Old Testament. And I'll give you some, um, some of those. And um, I had not had a chance yet to... Actually, I left that as an exercise for you. I'm going to give it to you in the Hebrew. I'll give you the... The references in Genesis, you can look them up, and most of the time you will find Lord or God. So keep bear in mind that in the translation, a lot is being lost in the original intent. So Elion is a name of God that is found in Genesis 14, 18, and 19:22, and is found only in Psalm 78:35 outside of Genesis. And El Shaddai, which means the strong one. Is in Genesis 17, 1, 28, 3, 35, 11, 43, 14, and 48, 3, and is found also only in Exodus 6, 3. 
And then there's a number of other ones which I'll just mention in passing. If you're interested, come talk to me afterwards. El Roy, El Olam, El Beth El, El Eliho Yisrael, Eloh Yashamayim, and um, Avir Yaakov, uh, and uh, a number of other ones. Those names are only found in the book of Genesis and not f- further. Why? Because there is something momentous that happens after Genesis. What is that? What happens after Genesis? There's a momentous event that changes the history of Israel after the book of Genesis. And it's the golden calf. So the golden calf is to Israel what original sin is to humanity. Right? And that changes everything when the golden calf occurred. It completely curtailed the <clears throat> relationship between God and Israel. No longer would God speak directly to Israel but God would only minister to Israel through the angels and the angels to the, the, the high, to the priests and the priests to the people. There were all this, this separation between God and his people that occurred after the golden calf, which we're not going to get into in this study, but when we get to the book of Exodus, we'll, we'll go through it. That, did not, that wasn't the case in the book of Genesis. So the relationship between God and humanity was far more direct and closer in the book of Genesis than you find later. Other interesting um, facts that are only found in the book of Genesis and also explained by the, by the golden calf is the stone pillar. In the book of Genesis, you will find the, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob offering sacrifices, building stone pillars, whatever they wished. And that was strictly forbidden by Leviticus in chapter 28, verse 1. God forbade the, the, the Israelites from being able to do what the patriarchs did. Why? Because with the patriarchs, they were still king, prophet, and priest. Every firstborn was king, prophet, and priest. After the golden calf, only the tribe of Levi could offer sacrificial, uh, could, could, could uh, offer sacrifice to God. So there, and then only in one place, the tent of meeting, and then later the temple of Jerusalem, nowhere else. Uh, family life. So very interesting. Uh, Abraham marries his half-sister, an act forbidden by the law. Jacob is, was married to two women, an arrangement which was outlawed in Leviticus 18.18. 18. Judah and Tamar understood that the Leverat related father to son, not father to... Okay, if you, we'll get to the story of uh, Judah and Tamar, but uh, very briefly, um, when uh, uh, Tamar was married to the son of Judah and his son died, and... And Tamar and Judah both understood that the Levirat, the law of the Levirat, meant that it was up to Judah to, to um, um, yeah, to to sort of give her his son, but he decided not to, and then she did something rather interesting to get him to realize what was going on. And anyhow, what was going on between him and her was strictly restricted in the book of. Uh, um, in, in, in the law to brothers only, not fathers and the deceased of the husband. So there were some restrictions that are applied in the book of uh, um, um, in the law that were not yet in place in Genesis. Um, both Judah and Simeon married Canaanite women, which was prohibited in Exodus 34, 15 I'm sorry, 16 and in general, religious differences 
between the Israelites and the surrounding people did not, was not a source of tension, only moral conduct was. Only moral conduct was. Remember last time I've told you that it isn't just the theology that matters. The morality matters just as much as the theology. It isn't just what you believe. It's how you believe that matters. So you can't tell me I believe in everything the Catholic Church teaches or I am a Catholic, but I support abortion. You may be right on the theology, but you're wrong on the morality, and therefore that's cause for excommunication. You place yourself outside the realm of the Catholic Church. You can't tell me I'm a Catholic, but I use contraception. You just put yourself outside the realm of the Catholic Church. Right? Simple as that. And no one has to actually officially hand you a paper to say you're not in. You did it yourself, objectively, in the eyes of God. You chose not to be part of his church. That's the choice you made by your moral act. You may believe theologically everything and recite the creed A to Z, but if your actions are not in harmony with the moral view of the Catholic Church, you do not believe. And oh, by the way, let us be very clear about faith. Faith cannot be graduated. You can't have 50% of faith or 70% of faith or 22.5% of faith or 99% of faith. You have it or you don't. What do you mean? Well, it's very simple. You love your wife or you don't. There isn't, I love her 5%. I'm improving. Yesterday I, was, I loved her 4%. <laughs> you love her or you don't. Simple as that. You have faith or you don't. What does that mean? It means that if you refuse to assent, not agree, not accept, assent, obey, one of the teachings of the Catholic Church, one, pick one, doesn't matter which one, you don't have faith. You may have a set of beliefs that culturally accord with what the Catholic Church teaches, and you'd be comfortable sitting there, but you have no faith. And don't take it from me, take it from St. Thomas Aquinas. So yeah, in our churches these days, we have a lot of cultural Catholics. They're here, they're comfortable because they're culturally comfortable. But faith is dead. And the church, in her mercy, because she's a mother, allows them and tolerates their presence precisely because she loves them and she hopes that somehow their faith will be kindled again through the prayers and sacrifices of all the faithful. So if you go to the church and you see a lot of people you think should not be there, start with yourself first. Start right there. And then secondly, think about the fact how God is merciful. And this is not about having the perfect audience or the perfect congregation. It is about having and showing God's mercy. Because we all need mercy. All of us. Especially those who think they don't need it. So th this is what, uh, what faith is all about. Also, another interesting fact, uh, factor of the book is angelo angel angelology. The presence of the angels in the book of, Revelation, of, the, of Genesis is unequaled through scripture other than the book of Tobit and the book of Revelation. There are so many cases of angels being present in the book of, uh, of uh, Genesis that is absolutely incredible. And uh, time and time again, I again remind you of the, your guardian angel. Every grace you receive from God comes to you through your guardian angel. There isn't one grace you receive that doesn't come to you through your guardian angel. He is the one who channels all the graces from God to you because that's how God wants it. So if you don't have a devotion to your guardian angel, if you have no clue who he is, Get on with it. 
okay? Get on with it. You don't want to spend, you know, the first 3,000 years of your life in heaven saying, I'm sorry. All right, so, so just get on with it. And if you've never done that before, you don't have no devotion, you've got an angel, have no clue what to begin, begin very practically. Start by asking God an angel to find you a parking spot when you're driving somewhere. Give him some lead time, though, but he will find you a parking spot. And I'm not telling you this to use your God an angel in a utilitarian fashion. It is to give you, to encourage you to start including him in everything you're doing. Everything. So eventually you end up with this ongoing conversation with your God an angel. And you won't do anything without his approval. That's where you want to be. Because he's there for your guidance. So angels are present in the, in, in the, um, in the, book, of, uh, in the book of Genesis. I think that's enough for overall comments. I suppose what, I, what the, leading, the leading point I'm trying to get to is that there is definitely some clues within the book that indicate it, its uh, ancient origin. The fact that these names were present in it and nowhere else. The fact that you have these family relationships. There are some customs, like putting your hand under the thigh of a man when, you're, when you are engaged in a covenant with him. That's only present in the book of uh, Genesis. It doesn't occur anywhere else in Scripture. Some of the names. So if you look at the whole patriarchal line, of the 38 names listed, 27 occur only in Genesis and nowhere else. They seem to have dropped. So definitely there is a sense that the book of Genesis is ancient compared to what comes after. Right? So, so for instance, today, a lot of, lot of uh, kids may be called, uh, I don't know, Johnny. And maybe in 500 years from now, no one is named Johnny anymore. So it'd be like, for instance, having a kid today called Melchizedek. Well, it doesn't happen that often now, does it? Right? Or Bartholome- uh, you know, Bartholomeus. Or uh, Bartimaeus. How many kids named Bartimaeus do you know? Not a lot, right? So you know right away that if you hear that name, it's of a different uh, epoch. So that's what's going on here. It indicates some of the internal evidence that this was um, an ancient book. Very good. So now turn your your Bible to the first chapter, and let's see if you can get to the first five verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the, from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was one evening, and there was one morning, one day. So, in the beginning, in the beginning, I told you this in the Hebrew is Bereshit. Now, for those of you who understand, uh, I don't think there are many, many here who un- really understand Hebrew, but there may be some who understand Arabic. If you understand Arabic, you might get a clue what the meaning of this word is because it is very close to be, the usual suffix, I mean prefix, and rosh or ras, beras, in the head. Literally, that's what it means, in the head. So head of what? Well, head of the line, indicating what, therefore, the beginning. But beginning is one of the meanings. One of the meanings. Keep that in mind. We'll come back to it. There's some really interesting implication here. So first, a couple of important uh, pointers. To To the Jews, this is not the book about 
that, that sort of necessarily indicates the first act of creation on God's part. They would read it as when God was creating, or as God was creating. They do not see it as being the very, they don't see verse 1 as being the very first act of God's creation. But it is an act while God was creating. And indeed, the text doesn't necessarily support the notion that that is the very first act of God's creative work. You can't infer that from the text. It says, in the beginning. It doesn't say, in the very first beginning, or when God started creating, this is the first thing He did. It doesn't say that. We inject that into it because of our compulsive, time-based reading of everything. Well, in the beginning, and there's nothing before it, therefore it must be the very first thing that God did. Says who? Well, my watch says so. No. Can't do that. Cannot infer that. That this is an exact account of the very first act of God's creative creation. We, we don't know that. What we really know is that while God was creating that, that is mentioned first, is light. So, for instance, the Jerusalem Targum interprets the first line thus, in, through, or to, wisdom, God created. They see in the beginning as in wisdom, God created. Indicating what? That the creation of the world was made in a wise fashion. That is rational. The creation of the world was a rational act. All right? They don't necessarily see it as a linear depiction of the events that took place. We, in our journalistic-minded view of the world, see it this way. We just record the facts. Okay, God created first the light, and He did that second, etc., etc. That was not what was really important to them. They weren't looking to see the necessarily the order of things. What they were looking to see is the purpose behind these things. That was far more important to them, and in a sense, it should be very important to us as well. And for instance, um, I'll, I'll give you a point of reference. I don't have time to read it now, but uh, check Proverbs chapter 8, verse 22. And then also the book of wisdom, particularly chapter 7 through 9. Now, Rabbi Isaac, in his commentary, says this. The Torah, that is the law, which is the law book of Israel, should have commenced with the verse from Exodus chapter 12, verse 1. This month shall be unto you the first of the months which is the first commandment given to Israel. What is the reason then that it commences with the account of creation? He's asking a question from the point of view of the Torah. Notice his view. His point of view is the law is given to us. The law is the most important thing. If I look at scripture illuminated by the law, why does it start with creation? Again, to us the question doesn't even come to mind because we are time-minded. Of course it has to start there, because this is the first thing God did. But why do we impose a linear? Why is linearity so important? What does it say about God? He says, Eshad started with the first commandment of the law. So why does he start with the creation? And he answers, quite cogently, because of the thought expressed in Psalm 71, verse 1. He declared to his people the strength of his works. He declared to his people the strength of his works. Now, 
This is how we all should be. We should read scripture in light of scripture. We should see how there is unity across all of scripture. What is he really saying when he says, why is he quoting this? It sounds sort of enigmatic now, doesn't it? What, what is he trying to say? It sounds enigmatic until you understand the structure of the covenant. A covenant has five parts to it. The very first part is where the, the covenant has two parties. The strong party and the weak party. And the strong party begins by declaring the reason why he can structure and impose the covenant. Because he's a strong one. And typically, in covenants, the deeds of the strong party are read first. These are the things that the strong party did, and therefore this is why he has authority over the covenant. Get it? So what is he saying? He's saying the reason why it starts with the creative act is to show forth the majesty of God. God did all these, therefore God is the author of the covenant, and therefore God is the one who, can, who has the right to create that covenant and invites us to enter into it. It is sort of the letter, letter of credit, the resume, the CV of God. That's how it was viewed. It wasn't so much viewed as in a, okay, these are the all things that God did. It's mostly, this is what God can do and what we cannot do. Rabbi Isaac points out also that the creation was made for the law, called in Psalm 7 verse 1, the beginning of God's way, and for Israel, called in Jeremiah 2 verse 3, the beginning of God's increase. So what, what, what was the purpose of creation? For the law. And for Israel. Now, of course, this is a limited interpretation from our perspective. The Christian view is slightly different. We don't say the 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 world the world was created for the law, right? We say something else. What do we say? Well, let's see what the ancient Christian fathers had to say about that subject. Origen asks, "What is the beginning of all things except our Lord and Savior of all?" And he points to one Timothy four ten. Jesus Christ, the firstborn of every creature, the firstborn, the one in the head of every creature. So the Christian reading of the fathers had, has been to see in the first word, Bereshit, in the head, a pointer to our Lord, Jesus Christ. The world was created in the head, in the second person of the Trinity, through the second person of the Trinity, with the second person of the Trinity. It isn't just an indication of time. It is an indication of essence. It is an indication of origin. That the whole world, from the beginning, was part of God's creative act, including the second person of the Trinity. Somehow, we have this misguided view, again, because we're so temporally based, that the Old Testament has God the Father, and oh, by the way, it has God the Father, wrathful all the time. Then the, second, then the New Testament comes and we have Jesus, the hippie, walking around, singing Kumbaya and peace sign to everybody and I love you. And then after that, we have the Holy Spirit coming down as a dove and then fluttering over the church and now this is it. Wrong, wrong, wrong. God, the second person, the Word of God, the second person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit were involved in the creative act from the very beginning. From the moment, even before the world was created, the second, the second person of the Trinity knew exactly what that act of creation was going to cost him. 
and he still did it. There was no surprises there, and he still did it. Of course, but that's also in reference to his divinity. I am being the word Yahweh. I am that I am. All right. And this is, by the way, an idea that was shared by the fathers. I just quoted uh, Origen. There are many other fathers I could quote, but I'm still in verse 1. So, anyhow, God, in the beginning, God. What is the word for God here? It's Elohim. Elohim, interestingly enough, is the plural form of the equivalent of Ilah or Eli. Elohim is the plural form. So it's interesting. In the beginning, God's created. The Jews have really no explanation for this other than a couple of facts. Number one, Elohim was, was a common name used. It wasn't only here. It was used throughout the region. They would speak of Elohim, God's. But in the context of most of the religion, surrounding religion, uh, you had multiple gods. So it would make sense to speak of multiple gods. In the case of Israel, there's only one god. Why use the plural form? Some say just a way of increasing God's majesty. Maybe. We, of course, Christians, see in it more. Now, it's not the primary meaning, of course. We can't say that the human author, when he wrote that, had in mind the Trinity, because the Trinity is a revealed truth. No human mind could have known of the Trinity if God did not reveal it to us through His Son. Yet, the Holy Spirit, being the ultimate author of Scripture, put it there for those who were to come later and find out that from the beginning, the Trinity, Elohim, was creating. Notice it's also Elohim, not Yahweh. I am that I am. Because it really connotes the notion that God is creating, apart from his, his, his salvific action, his act of salvation towards Israel. Therefore, any rational mind, believer or not, can come to the knowledge of the existence of God as Elohim. Now, whether he comes to the knowledge of the existence of God as Yahweh, Jehovah, or as Jesus Christ being God, requires more, requires grace. But as God creating the world, man, through reason, can arrive at that truth. Now, created, the word is, again, the word here is bara, which occurs six times in the creation narrative. 1-1, 1-1, heavens and earth, sea and monsters and fish in 121, three times in 127 with the creation of man, and one more time in 2, chapter 2, verse 3, when God rested from his creation. The interesting thing about the, the, that word bara is that it really uh, depicts an act of, it's, it's a divine act that cannot be performed by man. Man cannot bara. We use the word create as a synonym to invented. But fundamentally, we can't create a thing. I think I've told you this, uh, this story of scientists who went to God and said, Lord, Lord, God, look, look, we can create life ourselves. We don't need you anymore. And God said, really? Yeah. Okay, show me. Oh, it's really easy. Look, look. We start with dirt. And God said, hold it. That's my dirt. Go get your own. We can't create anything, really. Right? We cannot bara. So to the Hebrew, that was very clear. That's an act that, ha- that is the abyss between man as a creature and God as a creator. He can do certain things we cannot do. All right. 
And one more point I want to bring to your attention is that the notion of creation ex nihilo, that is creation out of nothing, is not explicitly stated in the book of Genesis. Nowhere do you see that it says God created everything out of nothing in the book of Genesis. It's not there. Okay? It is not there. It is, however, explicitly stated in the second book of Maccabees, chapter 7, verse 28. There it is explicitly stated. The second book of Maccabees, chapter 7, verse 28. So if you meet some of your Protestant friends, you might want to ask them if they believe that God created everything out of nothing. And if they said yes, which they're supposed to say, then gracefully ask them, where does Scripture state that? And they will be in a little bit of a pickle because they decided to take out the second book of Maccabees from their Bible. Ask them if God created everything out of nothing. Right? And then ask them to show you where Scripture says that it, He created everything out of nothing. And it isn't in their Bible. It is only in the Catholic Bible. And so you simply might want to point out to them that the Catholics basically have all what the Protestants have and then some. And it's that part that they may be missing out on. Having said that, we may argue by the negative because in the account I just read to you, there is the absence of any mention of pre-existent matter. Unlike the Egyptian and Sumerian mythologies. So in those mythologies from these neighboring uh, uh, um, people, you will see that before the act of creation begins by the gods, there is indication of pre-existent matter. That is, matter was, and then the gods fashioned matter into something. They did not create matter. Right? So that's sort of the common view across the region. And the fact that this is not present in the book of Genesis is highly significant. It is saying something because it is not saying something. Do you understand? So you can, you can infer, you can infer, not through Scripture alone, but by comparing Scripture to other, to other writings around, that the intent is to say that God created out of nothing. But it isn't explicitly stated anywhere. Um, all right, let me, let me try and finish verse 1. So, Heavens and the earth. To the ancient mind, the world consisted of three things. So that's a common view. That was the cosmological view of the ancients. The world consisted of three things. Heaven, earth, and the underworld. That was it. Heaven, earth, and the underworld. And then there is this notion of the firmament, which is the frontier between heaven and earth. And the firmament is, was responsible for moisture and for light. And for light. So keep in mind that to the ancients, light is not necessarily connected to the sun. The moon is not just reflecting the light of the sun. That was not understood. To them, the moon has its own light, just like the stars do. Furthermore, you do not necessarily need the sun to have light. Why? Because when it's overcast you got the light. And at dawn, you have light before the sun shows up, and light stays at dusk after the sun has set. So light is not necessarily related to the sun. That's why it was very 
natural for them to speak of God creating light first before there were any stars. And the interesting part is that cosmologically they were right. Light existed before stars were formed. But they couldn't have known that. So all they knew was the cosmological understanding of their world. And in particular, Earth, where we live, heavens, is sort of the dome above. And above it is the inaccessible abode of God. And beneath is the underworld. So therefore, when they say created heavens and earth, what are they trying to say? What did God create? Everything? Almost. What's missing? The underworld. Isn't that interesting? So it is not enough to say, to study what Scripture is saying. We also have to understand what it is not saying based on its culture or context. It doesn't say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the underworld. Heavens and earth. Not the underworld. Kind of interesting, isn't it? We'll come back and, and revisit that when we talk about the, you know, the fall of man. So, but essentially, heavens and earth... The heavens and the earth essentially represent the cosmos. Uh, in Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 16, and 51, verse 19, you'll find some of the few places where everything is used to indicate the cosmos, not heaven and earth, heavens and the earth. But by and large, you'll find that expression, heavens and the earth, to indicate the whole cosmos. Okay? Heaven is the abode of Yahweh. So, for instance, Psalm 103, verse 19 and the book of Isaiah, chapter 45, verse 18. Heaven is hidden reality. Earth is revealed reality. There is an interesting point that is brought again uh, by, uh, by Rabbi Isaac, where he says, how come he built heavens, the roof, and earth, the foundation, in this order? When a man builds a house, he first builds the foundation, and then the roof. You'd build first earth, and then you cap it up with heaven. Why is it that he says, heavens and the earth, not earth and the heavens? Well, his answer is not as illuminating as the question itself. Because what is then the cosmos? What is it? I just told you. What is it? It's a house. The whole universe is a house. Okay, a house of what? A house of prayer. That's what the cosmos is. If you think about it, the heavens, the dome, is where God's abode is. And therefore, it is a place of prayer. Because it's the house of God. And earth is supposed to be what? An altar of sacrifice. That's why we speak of the four corners of the earth. Not because the earth is flat, but because earth is an altar of sacrifice. Altar of sacrifice, house of prayer. It is prayer. It is liturgy. The whole cosmos is built this way. What is then a temple? How is a temple built? Following what architecture? Cosmic. A temple is a mini cosmos. It represents the entire house. You understand? You can see that in beautiful Catholic churches. You go there, and what do you have right above the altar? You typically have this huge dome going up. Why? Heaven. Right? Then there is a difference between the bima, the sanctuary, and the rest of the church. What is the sanctuary representing? 
heaven and earth. So typically, it'll be marble. Why marble? Because it's a sea of glass, as described to us in the book of Revelation. You want to know what people believe? See how they build their churches. Simple as that. If you want to know what people believe, watch how they build their churches. You step in a church and you can tell what they believe. What is, what is architecture? It is prayer in stone. That's all. In the book of uh, Exodus, there are seven chapters where God is describing to Moses specifically in minute details how to build the Ark of the Covenant. And then when the temple is to be built, the architect is God. He gives Solomon the exact specification of how he wanted this built. And when he told Noah to build the ark, the architect was God. He told him specifically, in the, fi- in the minutest detail, why he wanted it this way. Why? Because God knows us better than we know ourselves. And he knows that we are made of a body and a soul, and we need physical reality to help us believe because we're so weak. You step in the church and look like an amphitheater for, theater, for cinema, guess what you're going to treat it like? Exactly this way. How do you know that? Easy. After Mass, what do people do? Even good Catholics, what do they do? They get up and start chattering. Hi, how are you? Why? The show's done. Mass is a show. Now the show is finished. God is not in the altar anymore. He's not in the tabernacle anymore. God is gone. The show is finished. He'll come back next Sunday. Thank you very much. I mean, we keep on going this way. We'll probably be eating popcorn a couple of years from now while we're in church. And chips. We're getting there. You probably have more people in your pews if you did it this way. Architecture tells you how people believe. God gave us the architecture. He told us how you wanted things built. Well, we're better than God. We're going to invent it ourselves because we know better. Way to go. You know that business of the fruit? We keep on doing it over and over again. All right. So as I told you, why does it precede heaven and then earth? The temple's roof made before the, its pavement. God is not subject to nature's demands, nor to the rules of technique. God is the creator and master technician of nature and art and everything made or imagined. The point, therefore, is that God created a house of prayer and its intent is to help us, his creature, adore him in truth and, and spirit so that we can go back to him by making full use of our freedom. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the way we apprehend Scripture in its context. All right? We have some time for questions. Yes. Yes, I will cover the underworld when we get to original sin. But fundamentally, the notion is that precisely the underworld is not a substantial thing. It is precisely the lack of something. Just as evil is not a thing, it is the lack of something. No, the underworld was not part of the earth when he created the earth. Precisely, because the earth is a substantial thing. But the underworld in and of itself is not. It is the lack of the presence of God that makes the underworld, in a, in a nutshell. Yes? Oh, that's a very good question. Can a covenant be like getting a new job? No, not really. Because getting a new job is a contract. So what is the difference between a contract and a covenant? A contract is an exchange of goods. A covenant is an exchange of people. I give you my son, and I take you for my sons. A contract can be revoked. 
I'm supposed to sell you broccoli. You're supposed to make me 50 bucks. I bring no broccoli. I get no 50 bucks. A covenant can never be revoked. What if they say no? Okay, the question is, what if the Protestant friend, when you ask him if everything has been created by God out of nothing, if that Protestant friend says no, he just rejected one of the most fundamental tenets of Christianity, that God is creator. You have a deeper issues to deal with. Okay? Yes. Exactly. Uh, you're pointing to, to the, 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 yes, the letter to the Hebrews by St. Paul, where he speaks of, uh, of uh, faith is the... Uh, yes. And so precisely because St. Paul has this view of the world, he can speak this way to contemporaries who understood what he was talking about. We have a harder time because we only look at the abstract concept. It is disassociated from the cosmological point of view of the world. But to them, it was a lot easier. Yes? Rabbi, Rabbi Isaac? Yeah. He was one of the writers that is mostly quoted in the Jerusalem Targum, which is the, uh, ex- um, w- w- where they expand on the book of the law, and they, they explain it. Not all interpretation would fit within our Christian view, but there's a lot of good insight in that. Any other question? Yes? Yeah, again, as far as the book of Revelation goes, I stated explicitly, and I'm not talking about the end of the world. All I'm talking about is the way God ministers to his people through the covenant by explaining to us in the book of Revelation how he acts towards us. And the breaking of the seals does not indicate the end of the world. It indicates potentially the end of an age, which is a different thing. Right? And if you, if you sort of... Keep on watching what's going on. I'm not saying this is happening. I'm just keep on watching. You have to watch and pray and read the signs of the time. But don't certainly, my point is that do not think that these events are happening out of just natural disaster because Mother Nature is upset. Or Mother Nature had a hiccup. God has nothing to do with it. That's not true. Everything is regulated by God's activity and action in response to our prayer. That's the key. And you watch what's going on, and you kind of wonder, okay, what is God up to? And you pray to understand the signs of the time. God wishes to reveal to us His action. Why do we know that? Because in the book of Revelation, He precisely revealed to His people what was about to happen. So His intent is not to leave us in the dark. We leave ourselves in the dark because we're not thinking that God is engaged in the world today. He's sort of a distant God out there in the firmament, he put us on autopilot, and from time to time he comes and checks to see if the stew is ready. That's sort of the view of many people, but that's not how God acts. All right? So just keep, what, what, remember the command. Pray and watch. That's the command. And don't think that God is not acting. He is. Yes. Uh, I refer to the Catholic Church as Israel. Actually, I'm not the one referring to the Catholic Church of Israel. The church refers to herself as the new Israel. The Catechism speaks of the church in these terms. So this is nothing new. Uh, Why do we say that? Because effectively, what did Christ say when he came? I have not come. Right? I did not come to reject the law, but to complete it. So he is making true what was promised. That the promise which was given to Israel has now become reality in the new Israel, which is the church. God has never renounced the covenant. It is the one and same covenant that He gave to Adam, to Noah, to Abraham, to David, to Moses. I mean, to Moses and to David. And then through Jesus Christ, you have the fulfillment, the reality of that covenant 
in the church. So the church is the new Israel. Absolutely. We, we are closer to the prophets than the Jews today are to the prophets. Because we speak the same language. Now, bear with me. Second point. About the state of Israel. The state of Israel is a nation. The presence of the state of Israel is very interesting because St. Paul told us that one of the sure signs of the coming of the end of the times is the conversion of the Jews. They have to convert. It hasn't happened yet. But it is definitely intriguing to see that after all these years, regardless of all the politics around it, regardless of all the injustice and all these things that are going on, set that aside for a second. The fact that there is now a state of Israel is kind of interesting. It's kind of, it gives you a moment to think about what is God up to? One more time. What is God up to? So, in regards to this, I have two things to say, especially to many of you who are from the Middle East and who suffer from what's going on there. I, I have to say two things. I want to be very, very clear. Number one, the state of Israel is the state of Israel. It's just a state like any other state. It's a secular state. Most of them don't believe in God. They don't believe in most of the things that the Bible teach. Some do, and then some have it wrong. All right? Having said that, I can assure you that anyone who hates a Jew will not make it in heaven. If there is hatred in your heart for the Jews because of Israel, you have some work to do because you're going to make it in there. You know why? Jesus and Mary never said, we stop being Jews. Huh? Okay. What are we? We're Jews. We are the Israel of God. This is who we are. We belong to his family. He adopted us. So anyone who has hatred toward the Jews, in particular, is in deep kimchi. If he thinks he's going to be able to make it to God, to, to heaven. They're going to work. Right? The other problem is that if you have hatred for the Jews, the Bible will be close to you. Because you can't understand the Old Te Covenant, the Old Testament. You won't even read it. Because, oh, that's old stuff. This is about the Jewish people. We don't need this. We just have to read the New Testament. Good luck understanding the New Testament if you don't understand the Old. You can't. Alright? So, let's be very clear. And again, I had at one point people who came from the Middle East and would hear me speak of Israel or speak of Moses. I have a lot of devotion for Moses. I, I think of him as... I, mean, I, I love Moses. It's amazing to me. Joseph, also spending two years in that prison in Egypt and never renouncing his faith, not having access to the sacraments. Talk about faith. That man is amazing. So, I would speak this way and people would come to me and say, so... You're supporting the politics of Israel? Excuse me? <laughs> they could only see it through the political prism. Everything I said seemed to be that I'm here to sing the praises of the state of Israel. Which is, it's nonsense. It's nothing to do with it. Okay, so no, the church, so the Protestant, yeah, they are deceived. You know those people trying to rebuild the temple? They're deceived. The temple has been rebuilt. It's called the Catholic Church. That's it. They're spending a lot of their time doing something that is vain and will never happen because God will not allow it through the covenant that he established with his church. This is the true covenant. Here is the temple. Here is God's presence. Make sense? Okay. Any other questions? Um, Jews are still his chosen people. Not anymore. The, the, the people of God are his church. However, he has predilection towards the 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 the. the, the um, the Jews, because God does not renege his own love. And he loves them, and he wants them in heaven because of all the things they had to, to go through while carrying the covenant for the rest of us. 
So God does not, cannot be overdone with generosity. They were generous towards him. He's always be generous towards them. But today, the people of God are right here. Let's be very clear. Again, Catholics has, have these days, the crisis in the church is that Catholics have really a hard time being Catholics. They're so sheepish. I'm Catholic. I'm sorry. It's not my fault. My parents made me Catholic. I'm just like you. They're just so afraid of being Catholic. Why? Because they lost their bearings. They lost their faith and their love for the church. Catholics, by and large, don't love the church. They don't have love for the church. How can you be Catholic if you don't love your mother? Now, did you notice the crisis in motherhood? Did you notice abortion? Do you think there is a relationship between the two? Do you realize that those who actually are using contraception contracept Jesus Christ in the Eucharist? Do you notice we're pushing the holy, the, the, the tabernacle outside our churches? Do you see that? Morality impinges on our faith. You don't live a proper moral life, how could you believe? And we're afraid to declare the, the glory of the church. But remember what he said. If you are ashamed of me, but see, we don't distinguish. That's exactly it. If we distinguished, then we cannot love Jesus Christ through his passion. Because that was exactly the problem of the Jews. Many of them loved the teaching. They had no problem with the teaching. But when they saw him battered and bruised, and carrying his cross and crucified, there was no love there. Because they loved themselves more than they loved his suffering. So like with the church. Okay. It isn't enough to say that I love the, the, the church because of her teaching and the beautiful things about it. We also must the, love the church with all the problems that we see in her. Not saying that we accept them or we're happy about them, but we do not allow ourselves to renounce our faith or to be less Catholic because the battle is raging in the church. You understand? So those who, those who make those choices, they make them because their love for the church is weak, is not rooted. Right? You don't renounce your mother because there's problem in the family. Which family doesn't have problems? She's your mom and you will stand by her and do what you must to show the perfect example. That's my answer to those who sit down and start pontificating to me about all the problems in the church. I say, you know what? You're right. And you're a great guy. We need you. Come over here and give the example. And that's when I decided to change subjects. Because now I'm requ requiring something that, is, that engages their morality. See? All right. Let's end with a word of prayer. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.